We're starting a new sermon series today called The Table. Think with me about various tables in your life. One table that means a lot to me is my mom's large dining room table, which can seat 14. Now over 80 years old, it sits in our dining room. When I look at that table, I can still picture a table full of people, hear the clink of dishes and the rise of laughter late into the night from my parents' dinner parties, often with church friends, during my childhood. I think of other people's tables, too. The tiny table of the elderly couple in rural Indiana who served me, a young college student interning at their church, Sunday lunch. It was the first, and thankfully the only time, I ever tasted squirrel. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Can't say that I was missing it. Uh, I think of the many families, uh, young families, who invited Andy and I into their homes for dinner when we were newly married, living in Vancouver, British Columbia, 50 hours from home. Inviting us into their homes was really inviting us into their lives. We started as strangers around the table, but food gave way to conversation, which eventually, over many repeated meals, developed into friendship. Not all my memories of the table are positive. Sometimes there were fights. Sometimes there were awkward holiday family gatherings. Sometimes the table is empty. Sometimes I didn't get the invitation. Nowadays, sometimes the schedule is so packed, the family's eating in shifts or on the go or scarfing down food before the evening's activities. I think if we're honest, we all know the joy of being welcomed warmly, having a place at the table, as well as the pain of being excluded. The table can elicit such strong emotions from us because it isn't just about the food. Yes, we need the physical nourishment for our bodies, but the table also provides emotional and relational nourishment for our souls. The conversation and connectedness that results from really listening to one another does far more than supplying energy for our bodies. As one writer put it, meals don't share themselves, people do. God, who made food for our provision and pleasure, made the table for our souls. The table can be a place where both food and friendship meet. Perhaps that's one reason why a national study done several years ago on teenage health found a correlation between regular family meals and a wide range of positive outcomes, including academic success, lower rates of alcohol use, and lower rates of depression. We are more digitally connected now than ever, and yet according to the research, millions of people suffer from social disconnection. There's a debate in the literature about whether or not chronic loneliness really is an epidemic in our culture any more than at any other time in history. But one thing is clear. Left untreated, chronic loneliness is not just psychologically painful, It can also cause serious medical problems, including heart disease, cancer, depression, diabetes, and suicide. Former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has written that loneliness and social isolation are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to, you ready for this, that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater risk than that associated with obesity. 
As a New York Times article from last year concluded, human connection lies at the heart of human well-being. Now, let me be clear that for the duration of this series, we're using the table as a metaphor for Christian hospitality in general. And that's something far bigger, broader, and more all-encompassing than just inviting people to your home for dinner. It may certainly include that, but it isn't limited to that. I'm hesitant to even use the word hospitality because the concept is so misunderstood and misused today. But the term has such rich theological meaning, so instead of avoiding it, I want to, as Christine Pohl suggests in her amazing book on the subject, reclaim it as Christian tradition. Because it was. For centuries, until the 1700s, hospitality was a crucial aspect of Christian faith. And by hospitality, I don't mean table spreads worthy of Martha Stewart or Pinterest, nor am I referencing the hospitality industry by which strangers charge us for food or a, or a room. This may come as a surprise to you, but hospitality gets a decent amount of airtime throughout the Bible. Numerous stories, particularly in the Old Testament, are about hospitality. And in the New Testament, it's actually commanded. Here's a few examples. Romans 12, 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Here's one which makes me think the writer might have been in my kitchen. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And here's one that could really creep you out. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Practicing hospitality was considered so essential to the Christian faith, it was actually a qualification for church leaders. Listen to this. He, elders, or what would be our board, must be hospitable. And from 1 Timothy, an elder is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, sometimes in the church, the term hospitality is described as a spiritual gift that only some Christians possess. While it's true, some may have a more natural bent towards this, the gift lists were never intended as a license for others to not engage in those practices. The fact that this is commanded indicates it isn't just for the entertainers and the extroverts among us. In fact, entertaining can get in the way of true hospitality. And sometimes it's the less chatty among us who can do this better. This is for all of us who follow Jesus. If we're going to take the Bible seriously, Christian hospitality is not just a nice thing outgoing Christians do to help our community feel warm. It's something we all do as an expression of vibrant Christian faith. To be more specific... It's not an event. It's a way of life. It's an overall posture towards relationships and to life in general. Because we're working so much against so much misconception about true Christian hospitality, I want to spend a few minutes describing what Christian hospitality is in order to set up this series. Then we'll look more at the topic for today. Interestingly enough, it's the synonyms for hospitality in the Oxford English Dictionary that get more at the nature of Christian hospitality. 
friendliness, warmth, reception, welcome, helpfulness, neighborliness, kindness, generosity. At its essence, Christian hospitality is the concrete expression of loving others. If our job, as our purpose statement at City Church says, is to love God, love others, then practicing hospitality helps put love into action in small, tangible ways, being the hands and feet of Jesus, so to speak. And this concrete expression has always involved both a physical component and an emotional or spiritual component. As one writer put it, it not only meets human needs, it forges human relationships. It's not so much about providing a service as it is sharing lives. In this sense, practicing hospitality isn't merely loving a stranger by being kind to them. It's welcoming them into your community, your space, whether that's your home, your church, your school, perhaps even your nation. Christine Pohl writes, by definition, hospitality involves some space into which people are welcomed, a space where unless the invitation is given, the stranger would not feel free to enter. Maybe that's why the Greek word for hospitality in the Bible, philoxenia, combines these two words together, love or affection for people connected by kinship, phileo, and the word for stranger, xenos. In short, hospitality is love of stranger. Whatever concrete expression of love would generally be reserved for our family and friends gets extended outward towards strangers. In that way, perhaps we could, do, could describe Christian hospitality like this, the living embodiment of welcome. I love this one, the lost art of loving inclusion. It's beautiful. Treating people as equals. Seeking to make strangers neighbors and neighbors the family of God. However you want to define it. More practically speaking, it could be including a child on the periphery of your daughter's class in a group gathering. Or orienting a new colleague at work to the unique culture of your workplace. It could be answering the numerous questions of a new neighbor in your neighborhood could be introducing the new couple at church who've just moved here to another young couple or walking a parent through the check-in procedure at City Kids. Could be sitting next to the Somali woman at the PTA meeting interpreting all the insider language or the acronyms used or housing a refugee family in transition or simply meeting the parents of the other kids on your son's sports team. It might mean hosting a neighborhood gathering where neighbors can actually talk to one another instead of just waving from our cars and garages. The list can go on and on. Part of why it's so hard to describe Christian hospitality is because it can look a lot of different ways for different people, and it will, based on stage of life, personality, where you live, etc. But regardless of our address or personality or season of life, God wants our lives to be marked by this trait. Now, I know some of you may be slightly freaking out. This may sound intimidating. So I'm going to borrow a phrase that I love from my fitness instructor that she uses when she's demonstrating an exercise we all find a bit challenging. <laughs> she says, remember, you're in control here. You customize the movement that fits best for you. 
And the same is true here. You get to choose what this looks like in your own life. So no need to feel overwhelmed, even if some of this is a bit stretching. It is for all of us. For these four weeks, we're going to explore how we can all include this practice more in our lives. And I'm going to tell you, there's going to be both individual and corporate implications. And this is so far-reaching that for every week, I want us to be thinking in concentric circles. So you may want to start and think about, how does this impact my family and my home environment? How does this impact our church and what things look like here? How does this impact the other primary influences, the spheres of influence you and I both have, whether it's a workplace or a neighborhood or a school, a kid's sports team, an interest or hobby group? And then beyond that, how does this impact Minneapolis or our nation? And if someone comes to mind that you think needs this kind of embracing, jot their name down and begin thinking about possible ways you might extend the invitation. Now, just to give you an example of where we're going, or just to give you an idea of where we're going, today we're going to spend the remainder of our time exploring why we do this, remembering this is God's table, and we have been invited to it ourselves. Next week, we'll look more exactly at who is invited to this table, and I've already hinted at that. Week three, we'll look more in depth at what this actually is how this table is ever expanding, how we're constant looking outward to draw others inward toward this love. And the last week, we'll get real practical on how we do this. Because you know what? You and I only have so much time and so much energy and so much food, so much resources. How do we navigate being wise and yet being willing to take risks? My hope is that as we make our way through this series, we will all find ourselves practicing true Christian hospitality in increasing measure, whatever that looks like uniquely for us. So with that series overview aside, let's spend the remainder of our time looking at this first crucial question at the table, and that is why. Why do we practice Christian hospitality? Because we're Christians. <laughs> because this kind of welcome, acceptance, open invitation is at the very heart of who our God is. As one writer put it, Scripture is the testimonial of God's relentless hospitality toward his creatures. The God who made us and sustains us wishes to welcome everyone into his household through Jesus Christ. John, the disciple, opens his biography of Jesus with these words, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In other words, Jesus came to show us what God is like. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, this same John writes to a group of Jesus' followers with their, and by extension our, marching orders, No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us, 1 John 4, 12. In other words, Jesus, the most accurate representation of God, is no longer here. So it's up to those of us who have experienced God's love to model it now. We take up Jesus' mission of showing others what God is like, and we do that by loving others, by our words, our interactions, 
our priorities, our humility, our gentleness, we show people God's like this, not like this. And at the heart of what God is like is warm, generous invitation, generous welcome. One of the best examples of this is a story Jesus told. And I'm speculating here, but I think it was one of his favorites. It's the longest of all 40 parables he told. It's the parable of the prodigal son, or more aptly, the parable of the forgiving father. And I find it so interesting what prompts Jesus telling of this story. Luke 15, 1 to 2. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Their grumbling triggered this story. The meal table, then as now, often defines the boundaries of our community. Anthropologists argue that when they know what, where, how, when, and with whom a person eats, they can understand the nature of his society. Eating together isn't just a way of entering into and sustaining relationships. It's a transmitter of values and cultures. In the first century, who you ate with demonstrated who mattered, who was valuable. Maybe that's why so much of Jesus' life is told in settings defined by meals and why so often people got angry with him. Seeing his choice of dinner companions, the religious leaders grumble, making it evident they really don't know the same God Jesus does. So Jesus tells a story to show them what his father is like. Taking in sinners and eating with them, treating them like old friends, extending welcome and warmth to people outside your social circle, you betcha, Jesus says, The heart of God is this heart of radical, generous, extravagant, lavish welcome. I don't know what your experience is with your own father, if he was a positive influence in your life or if he wasn't present at all. Regardless of what our earthly fathers were like or what messages they communicated to us about our own worth or value, let me remind us this Father's Day of what our heavenly father is like. The story's found in Luke 15, 11 to 32. For the sake of time, I'm just gonna summarize it here and make a few comments along the way. So if it's too distracting to see the words on the screen, you can just listen. A man had two sons. The younger son asked for his inheritance while his father's still alive. Generally, inheritances come after someone has died. Essentially, in that culture, the son is saying, drop dead, dad. This not only defied the custom of the day, but was also downright insulting, hurtful, even humiliating. This broke the father's heart, not to mention having to deal with all the talk of the townspeople. The son takes his money and leaves home, and he's having a great old time until he runs out of money. Verse 14 says there's a famine, so he can't even rely on the goodwill of others. He lands a job feeding pigs their slop. And verse 16 shows us just how far he's hit rock bottom. He longed to fill his stomach with the slop the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom in order to bring healing. Verse 17 continued. He came to his senses. He devises a plan to go back to his father and tell him, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He thinks, obviously, I've burned my bridge with dad, but he does have a lot of hired workers, and they have plenty of food. Maybe if I come back groveling, he'll give me a floor to sleep on and a meal to eat. Anything's better than this. I got nothing to lose. So he got up and went to his father. Are you ready for this? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Had the father forgotten about the son? Had he been stewing in resentment this whole time? Oh no. His eyes have been fixed on the horizon. He's been waiting. He's been watching, hoping, praying for this day when that distant shape might appear. So when it does, he instinctually starts running out to meet him, which meant ignoring Jewish protocol of covering his legs, swallowing his dignity, and exposing his bare legs as he ran. And without hesitation, without awkward pause, without waiting for the apology, he throws his arms around him and kisses him. You are so welcome. You are so loved. The son's got his speech rehearsed, but the father doesn't even hear it. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Out of options, the kid just wanted a job on his dad's farm so he could eat pig slop. Instead, the father cleans him up, gives him the family ring, reinstating his place in the party, in the family, then throws a party. You want prime rib with that? Killing the fattened calf, which would feed about 100 people, thereby reinstating him in the community as well. You are not a servant. You are not a slave. You're my son. Have a seat at the feast I've prepared for you. You are so welcome. You are so loved. Happy ending, right? There's more. Jesus was a genius. What about those of us who never really wandered far off, who never really sowed any wild oats? What do we get? Enter the older son. He's been faithful to his dad for years. He never got a party. He comes back from hard days at work and hears the music and sees the dancing. What's going on? He inquires. The servants murmur, ah, your brother's come home. Father's killed the fat and calf for him. Verse 28 tells us the older brother gets angry. He doesn't want to reunite with the brother. In fact, he refuses to join the party. I can't help but picture Jesus glancing at the grumbling religious leaders at this part of the story. You see, God's love isn't just for the fallen, it's for the faithful too. The Father has no favorites. And so defying Jewish custom yet again, he excuses himself and goes out to meet the older son. Notice he initiates with both the younger and the older son. Verse 28 says, the father pleaded with him to join the party. 
After listening to the older son's complaint, he responds with the affectionate term, my son. Same words spoken over Jesus at his baptism by God the Father. This is my beloved son in whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. My son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You have not lacked for anything. You will receive my inheritance, but my table will be a place of grace. My table is open to all. Friends, this is what God the Father is like. This is our God. The broken find compassion. The wrongdoer finds forgiveness. The runaway gets reinstated, and not just as a servant or a slave, but as a son, as a daughter. Our Heavenly Father is not our finger-wagging critic whose expectations we can never live up to. Jesus, the one in closest relationship with God, has told us and shown us the opposite. God is a father eager to welcome his children home. Or as the Old Testament prophet put it, the Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. And this delight in us isn't just when we've been at home respecting the rules of the house. This is after we've messed up. The really good news for you and I, friends, is that God's love is not in the absence of wrongdoing, but rather in spite of it. He knows us inside and out. There is no false online persona with him. And even in knowing every aspect about us, The Father's heart is a relentless pursuit of all. His love is extravagant, lavish, generous, undeserved, and it's available to all. God wants everyone to join the party. He wants all his children to come home, and not just for the occasional meal. God's desire is to make all of us his sons and daughters and to welcome us to his table, his home, forever. When is the last time you sat at God's table? We're satiated by his love. Your thirst quenched by his generosity. God invites you to his table. He delights in you. So have a seat. Receive lavishly, pass the bread. Drink deeply of his love for you. You are so welcome. City Church, practicing hospitality isn't just what some people do. It's what followers of Jesus do. Because hospitality isn't just about our table. It's about God's table, his ever-expanding table, his ever-growing family. As those who've been invited to the table, who've sat at the feast, who've satiated ourselves on his love, who've been nourished by this life-giving relationship, we can't help but share it with others. There's always room for more. The table is never full. And so, following the example of our God, we invite others to the table. We extend the invitation. May we be people who sit regularly enough at the table that we can invite others to join us. Let's pray.
O God, our Father, once again, your words are so far and foreign from what we hear every day in the daily grind. Would you now, by your spirit, mute those false voices that lie about who you are and who we are? Would you clear up our misperceptions of what real welcome is? Help us now by your spirit to receive your love for us that we may in turn extend it to others. For Jesus' sake, amen.